last week we spent uh, most of the time um, talking about what is a sinner, what does it mean for us as sinners, because we are all sinners, as we talked about. And today's going to be more so the last uh, part of what I uh, ended with last week, uh, the glory of the gospel, the awesomeness of our salvation offered to us through Christ. And so uh, I'm excited and looking forward to it. Uh, Let's uh, read together. We are going to read from Psalm 69. So if you have a Bible, find your way there, Psalm 69. Um, If you open your Bibles to about halfway, you'll probably land in either Psalms or Isaiah. If you're in Psalms, find the right chapter. If you're in Isaiah, go to your left. Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire, where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters, and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary from my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my, Lord, for my God. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies, what did I not steal, must I now restore? O God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you. Let not those who hope in you be put to shame through me, O Lord God of hosts. Let not those who seek you be brought to dishonor through me, O God of Israel. For it is for your sake that I have borne reproach. That dishonor has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. When I have wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, it became a byword to them. I am the talk of those who sit at the gate and the drunkards make songs about me. But as for me, my prayer is to you, O Lord, that at an acceptable time, O God, in the abundance of your steadfast love, answer me in your saving faithfulness. Deliver me from the sinking in the mire. Let me be delivered from my enemies and from the deep waters. Let not the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up or the pit close its mouth over me. Answer me, O Lord, for the steadfast love is good according to your abundant mercy. Turn to me. Hide not your face from your servant, for I am in distress. Make haste to answer me. Draw near to my soul. Redeem me. Ransom me because of my enemies. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor. My foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I look for pity, but there is none. For my comforters, I have found none. And they gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. Let their own table before them cannot see, and make their loins tremble continually. Pour out your indignation upon them. Let your burning anger overtake them. May their camp be a desolation. Let no one dwell in their tents. 
for they persecute him whom you have struck down, and they recount the pain of those who have wounded. Add to them punishment upon punishment. May they have no acquittal from you. Let them be blotted out in the book of living. Let them not be enrolled among the righteous. But I am afflicted and in pain. Let your salvation, O God, set me on high. I will praise the name of God with a song. I will magnify him with thanksgiving. This will please the Lord more than an ox or a bull or horns and hoofs. When the humble see that they will be glad, you who seek God, let your hearts revive. When the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners, let heaven and earth praise him, the seas and everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah, and the people will dwell there and possess it, and the offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. Let's pray. Um, Father, we do pray for Chris, who's preaching over at Jones Road, and we pray for the people there. Spirit, consume Chris, guide Chris, speak through Chris. Spirit, consume those people, their hearts and their minds. Pierce them. Speak to them boldly and clearly with your word. Guide them uh, through your truth into uh, more love for you, a greater understanding of your glory. Spirit, we pray the same here. Consume me. Speak through me. Use me, your broken an undesirable vessel that is good only because of your, your saving work. May you be magnified today. Spirit, consume those here listening. Pierce their, their hearts and minds with your truth. Edify and encourage. Convict humble. Um, we see here uh, a psalm of great distress, but a psalm that points us to you and how you answer us in distress, and how you change our hearts when confronted with the sins of others. So we pray today, God, that you will speak to us about your servant Son, help us to revel in the glory of your servant heart. Spirit, make it real. Change us. Grow us into servants. Show us what we need to know about ourselves and you to be servants. Bring us to your freedom. In your name we pray. Amen. Um. So as I shared, uh, uh, I want to spend a lot of time on on the gospel today, the glory of the gospel and and the freedom and the joy that comes from it. But before we get there, um, just kind of, that was 36 verses, which I know is a lot, um, and it was deep. So I'm not planning on going through this and covering every verse, but some of the big ideas that we see through this. And so we start with... uh, the first few verses in 
Um, what we see is troubles, 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 troubles is all that David can see. And yes, for those of you paying attention, I did just quote a secular song. And if you did not get it, and you have mocked my distaste for music, shame. Shame on you. No, no um, David is uh, consumed by troubles here. He can see all these troubles. He talks about uh, waters rising and sweeping him, um, sweeping him away, sinking in mire. Um, no footholds, nothing, no, nothing solid to which he can rest on. Uh, his throat is parched from crying out to God. He's weary. And there are many who are mighty and who hate him for what he says that is without cause. And then he says he fears that God's people and that God's name or his testimony would suffer because of the slander that has been said against him. He is very deeply troubled. And he, he's, he's uh, certain that it is uh, slander because he says uh, that in verse uh, 9, for the zeal of your house has consumed me, and the reproach of those who reproach you has fallen on me. I've been consumed with you and your temple, your house, with your holiness, with your truth, and it is because of that that uh, those who reproach you, those who distaste, whose distaste for you leads them to speak ill of you, are speaking ill of me. He cries out for salvation, again, from the mire and the deep waters from his enemies. Uh, I'm going to read 19 through 21 again for you. He says, You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor, my foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. He's brokenhearted. There is great despair in David's heart and mind right now. And he's looking for pity. He's looking for comforters. And he can't find anybody. No one is looking at David and saying, yes, David, this, this is all unjust. This is all wrong. And I'm going to comfort you. I'm going to be there for you. And so David prays for the destruction of his enemies. Out of the zeal for his uh, for justice, his own righteousness, and love for God's people. He prays that those enemies will be destroyed. And then he leads to praise. Right from there, he, he praises God. Again, 33 through 36. For the Lord hears the needy and does not despise his own people who are prisoners. But heaven and earth praise him and sees in everything that moves in them. For God will save Zion and build up the cities of Judah. And the people shall dwell there and possess it. And the offspring of his servants shall inherit it. And those who love his name shall dwell in it. So one of the things we see here is David in his distress and in David in his uh, despair, speaking to God, he is confronted at times with his own sin. He says a few times that God, you know my reproach, you know my sin, you know my brokenness. Um, but he doesn't see all of his sin, which is why he prays for their destruction. So last week, um, I had four major points. Uh, we don't understand sin, we don't understand our nature, we underestimate the consequences of our sin, and we underestimate the glory, the fullness of the gospel. Um, David, I think, 
struggles in all four of those areas as well. We're not going to go over all of them, but uh, I spoke of sin and the consequences of sin in uh, a couple of ways, and I want to spend some time recapping that. But then mostly I want to spend time talking about um, what is a, a servant? What uh, is the glory of the gospel? In order to answer that, we're going to talk about what is the gospel, and then how does it solve our problems, and how does it change us in our world. So we're going to spend some time recapping a bit of what I talked about on sin last week, and we're going to talk mostly about what it means to be a servant, what is a servant, and the glory of the gospel. What is the gospel, how does it solve our problems, and how does it change us in our world. So last week uh, we talked about how sin is not just an action or a behavior. We really misunderstand what sin is when we think of it purely in that light. And Piper said, uh, we never merely leave God because we value him little. We always exchange God for what we value more. And our problem with God and with everyone else because of our problem with God has always been, we look at God and we say, God, you're good if I can get something else also. So our relationships become about the also or the and. I will be in relationship with you if I also get, or if this leads to something else. And so we, when we misunderstand sin, we don't see the selfishness of our own hearts. We miss how every relationship that we enter into becomes about what we can get, not about the relationship, not about the person, not about how we can serve. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it was the fatal mistake to think of sin always in terms of acts and actions rather than in terms of nature and disposition. The mistake is to think of it in terms of peculiar things instead of thinking of it as we should in terms of our relationship to God. Do you know what sin is? I will tell you, sin is the exact opposite of the attitude and the life which conforms to thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all my heart, with all my soul, with all my mind, and with all my strength. You're not doing that. You're a sinner. It does not matter how respectable you are. If you are living entirely to the glory of God, you are a sinner. If you're not living, sorry, if you are not living entirely to the glory of God, you are a sinner. And the more you imagine that you are perfect in and of yourself and apart from your relationship to God, the greater is your sin. Your sin is when you don't consider God and God alone and God first and in God in everything. Because when we do that, everything becomes about what we can get and not about the love of the person, the love of God, but what we can get from the person or from God. And so, again, here, uh, David's speaking of his despair. He spoke of waters rising and sweeping him, sinking in mire, no footholds, throats parched from crying out, weary. Um, And last week, we talked about uh, Jonah. And how Jonah's sin led him to be swallowed by a fish. And in the fish was absence, was emptiness. And we tend to think of sin very different than that. We think of sin as fun, as pleasurable, as um, a good and and pleasing thing. Something that um, uh, is time-consuming or distracting from the pains of this world. And they are those things to a certain extent, but they lead to the belly of the fish. David, in verse 15 Did not let uh, the flood sweep over me or the deep swallow me up 
or a pit close its mouth over me. In the fish was darkness, emptiness, nothing for David other than to be confronted with his sin. He ran from God, and God put him in a place where emptiness was all that he could know. To be swallowed by a pit, emptiness is all that we could know. This is the reality of sin. It is empty in and of itself. Apart from God, it, it leads us to brokenness and emptiness. But like David, we can continue in it. And so David, in his continual cry to God, it's not a sin to cry to God, but what he was asking for God to do was not what God wanted. And so David, in his cries, lost his voice. His throat was parched from crying. He was losing his ability to use it. That is the reality of sin. When we commit ourselves to something because of its emptiness, and when we realize how empty it is, and how addicted we are to it, how much, how deeply we need from it, we continue to go back for it more and more and more until we're left parched, until we're left empty, completely separated from any joy or possible pleasure from it. That's the reality of what sin in our nature is. We're broken, desperate people. We're people separated from God. Our nature is not good people who connect easily with God. Our nature is sinners who dislike God and only come to Him when we think we can get something else out of our relationship with Him. We talked last week about how Spurgeon calls it treason. Sin is taking God's kingdom and sub verting it and trying to use it for your own gain. That's the reality of what we have done. But the reality is it left us desperate. And so we are constantly seeking to connect ourselves to something. We're beholden to it. A um, couple of summers ago, um, I was uh, dealing with some stuff, some brokenness, not well. And uh, my friend Taylor Hunt, some of you remember Taylor, and I had uh, uh, started to exercise a lot, to run a lot, to bike a lot, because I wanted to be distracted, not think about things. And I also enjoy those things. And Taylor and I joked often during that time about how um, exercising is uh, definitely running from God at times, but it's one of the best ways to do it. Um, and we were joking because the reality is it's not. And ultimately, those of you know, I ended up with two pulled calves and um, some health issues because of how much I put into exercise, how little it gave back to me, and how much I needed more and more of it, and how much I committed myself to more and more of it. That's the reality of sin. The reality of things that we put our hope in is we're beholden to them. They have to be bigger than us. We're hoping they save us. They fill us. They give us something that we cannot have in ourselves. And so we have to worship it. We have to give ourselves to it. The second consequence of sin is condemnation. God's wrath has been earned by us, and we stand in its path, and we have guilt and shame. We need a way to deal with the reality of that guilt and shame. And there's really only a couple ways that we do it. We confront the reality of why I have guilt and shame, 
and I can decide that's all false. All these feelings of guilt and shame are based upon social constructs, cultural um, morals, but I have no reality, no grounds in truth, and so there, I could do whatever I want, and I have no reason to feel actual guilt or shame. Or I can uh, say, well, I don't want to live in a world absent of any morality. It would be complete chaos, complete brokenness. We need to treat each other with a certain amount of niceness, kindness, respect. In order to say that that is a need, I must say it is true, absolutely true. So I can't live in the reality of absolute moral absence. And therefore, if this is a need, everyone has to do it. If we don't, guilt and shame should follow. So that is a reality that will be true for all of us, a need for all of us, in fact. If we want do better, we have to realize when we aren't doing well. We have to recognize guilt and shame. So we can confront one of two things, the lawmaker or fellow lawbreakers. And so I can go to my fellow lawbreakers and say, look at their sins, mine pale in comparison to theirs, so I'm good and they're bad. Or I'm confronted with the one who says, this is how you should behave because I do so, and because I know it is absolutely how you can find real life and how everyone can live a life of abundance and joy and peace and rest. That's a very scary proposition for us sinners, for us selfish people. And so we typically fall to the second one, which really makes us need enemies. It makes us need evil people. It makes us need people to be less good and moral than us. Um, there was a, a review uh, on the Gospel Coalition website um, over a book on sexual ethics and marriage. Uh, the title for the review was The Joyous Story of Sex. Um, and one of the uh, things that the author of the review said about the book was... Uh, he said, specifically, he calls the church to confess two sins. The first is a rank hypocrisy caused by the reality gap between convictions and behavior, between the standards we impose on others and those we are willing to accept for ourselves. The second, this is our important point, is that many in the church have held to an incidental orthodoxy on this issue, rooted not in compassionate theological concern, but in disgust towards other image bearers. For many of us, we've built our theology based solely on our need to deal with our guilt and our shame so that we can look at others and say, you're disgusting. You're not valuable. You're not worthy. You're not as good as I am. And it's wrong. It's false. We are all sinners. Selfish. Not worthy. Broken. We saw this play out in Jonah last week. Uh, Jonah wanting the Ninevites to be destroyed, the Assyrians to be destroyed. We see it in David this week, praying for his enemy's destruction. Jonah was worried about his safety, his loved one's safety, Israel's safety, their God-ordained messianic childbearing 
promise and mission. Jonah's hatred for the Assyrians' behavior also was therefore based in a lot of self-righteousness and superiority, which resulted in an apathy towards their brokenness and suffering within God's wrath. David, worried about his reputation, worried about himself, worried about God's people being hurt, and that God's testimony would be damaged. Same things Jonah was worried about. Self, people I care about, I tell myself I care about anyways, and that God's God would somehow be damaged, and God's mission in this world would somehow be damaged because of the sins of these people. David also, like Jonah, hated the slanderers, hated those who were talking about him. And so their behavior led to David looking at them with a self-righteous superiority that led to an apathy towards their brokenness and their suffering within God's wrath. But we have a very different calling and a very different understanding of what we should be. We come from a triune creator who is self-sufficient within his triuneness. God is fully three as much as he's fully one, forever and always. And within himself is a relationship within those three persons. Relationships of complete other-orientedness, complete self-giving. And so there was no need in God. And so we have a creation that came not for a striving for something or a working for something, but out of a desire to give something, a desire to share the joy that is the Trinity, those perfect relationships. But we are self-oriented, and therefore we look exactly like David and Jonah most of the time. Some of you might be saying, look, I... I hear what you're saying. I recognize there's some things about me that I don't like, but it's not that deep. And the reality is it's this idea of truth that has caused people to be like Jonah and David and caused people to say things like, destroy them, or we need to destroy them, or we need to kill them, or we need to make sure that they are mocked and that they're abused and they understand how terrible they are. It's this idea of absolute truth that leads to dogmatic hatred and oppression. I want you to understand the emptiness of your own self-righteousness. I talked about it last week. I'm not going to talk about it much today, but go home this week and try as hard as you can to be the best person you can be. And when you fail, realize your weakness. But also, let me be clear what the difference is between you and me, you who say dogmatic absolute, or absolute truth leads to dogmatic hatred and oppression. The first distinct difference is we both believe in absolute truth. I admit it, you don't. When you say relativistic truth is needed and will lead to freedom, what you're saying is it's needed. It's absolute. It is truth. Where we disagree is what leads to a more generous, more loving, more respectful, more kind society. You believe it's through relativistic ideas. I believe it's through 
a dogmatic theology that comes to Christ as a Savior, which we're going to spend time talking about today. But please, don't misunderstand what you believe. You believe in something you think will lead to greater peace, greater joy in this world if everyone would believe it, if everyone would accept it, because it is true. I believe the same thing. It's just we believe different truths. And today, hopefully, we will see in what is the greater truth. And so we come to this idea of service, and specifically Christ who came to serve. What does it mean to serve? There's many ways we can look at it today. I want to look at it in this idea that is this. It is to sink. Perhaps none of you have thought about it in this idea before, but if you look back at verse 4 in chapter 69 of Psalms, it says, he says, David says, more in numbers than the hair of my head are those who hate me without cause. John 15, 25 tells us this. Jesus says, or the disciples said this, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Sorry, that was Jesus who sinks. But their word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. He quoted the Psalms here. David in verse 9 of 69 says, I am zealous for zeal, for zeal for your house has consumed me. And the reproach of those who reproach you have fallen on me. The disciples remember that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. John 2, 17 Jesus had just cleared the temple, and in so doing, they remember that Jesus had told them, zeal for your house will consume me. Again, Jesus ties himself to Psalm 69. Romans 5.13 tells us, for Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproach of those who reproach you fell on me. Again, Jesus ties himself to Psalm 69. Psalm 69, I think, is a clear messianic psalm, not in that David is prophesying, but that David is a Christ type that we find throughout the Old Testament. People who are used by God in many different ways to show how we need God, both in their greatness and their weakness. Here, mostly in David's weakness, we see our need for something greater. In verse 2, he said he sinks deep in the mire. Turn to Philippians uh, 2 you will. We're going to read verse 2 through 11. Now you're heading to the New Testament. You're going past the Gospels, past Acts, Romans, 1st and 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians. After that, you've got Colossians, the two Ephesians, uh, the two uh, Thessalonians, going to read, starting in verse 2 from Philippians 2, 2 through 11. Speaking of Christ, so there is an encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. 
but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yourself in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that that name of Jesus every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So we have this encouragement, this admonishment by Paul to not live by your own self-interest, to not live for yourself, but live other-oriented, live for others. How do we do so? We realize who Christ was. The first thing we realize is that he came as a servant. There are two steps down that Christ takes, two huge steps down, or if you will, two moments of sinking. First thing, even though he was equal with God, he did not consider it what he needed. He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. So he emptied himself. He came as a child. And then, from the manger, he went to the cross. The next sinking, the next step down, to die the death of a prisoner, to die the death of uh, the lowest among people at that time. Which leads us right into the glory of the gospel. So what is it? First and foremost, the first thing you need to know about the gospel is it's good news, it's not good advice. It's good news, it's not good advice. Rest in what has happened, not strive in this way. He did not come to direct us to work. He came to fulfill the work in himself, so we rest. Sin is good news, not good advice. Or I'm sorry, the gospel is good news, not good advice. Second thing we need to realize is sin. We've talked about it. We are all sinners. We are all selfish. We're supposed to be other-oriented. We are self-oriented people. We sin. We take God's kingdom and abuse it and misuse it. And then we have the reality of what that causes. Broken relationships, broken communities, lack of justice, hatred in our world. But Christ comes. Jesus sank and he came as a servant. Jesus gave up the vastness of heaven to be cramped in the womb of a chosen mother. He gave up the reins of his earthly creation, becoming a child dependent upon his earthly parents to be fed and cleaned and to change him. He gave up eternal rest, the God who never grows weary, to be one who slept almost all day at the beginning of his life. He gave up perfect relationships for perfectly impure relationships or perfectly imperfect relationships. Uh, 
Christ had known nothing but pure love, pure self-giving within the triuneness of his nature, of his relationships within himself with the other two members of the Trinity, the Spirit and the Father. And he came to our world, into the broken mess that we are, to live amongst people he knew would never really love him, They would love him imperfectly, always. He sank even more, giving himself to the teaching and the living out of the truth, fleeing from all earthly pleasure, realizing that all these things pale in comparison of the source of true, real joy, his triune relationship, his Godship. Being completely other-oriented, always living in service, never living for himself. Tim Keller says about Christ, says this, Jesus Christ is the most blatant and the bluntest and the greatest contradiction to the world's understanding of greatness that there is. The world's understanding is to promote yourself, advance your cause at the expense of other people, assume wealth and power, look out for number one. Jesus ascended by descending. The way up he taught us is the way down. The way to power he taught us is to serve. The way to rule is to submit. The way to find your life is to lose your life. The way to find your happiness is not to seek your happiness, but to seek the happiness of others. In that reality, Christ came to confront us in our, in our selfishness. With that reality came the realization that Christ came to be hated. We speak of Advent in glowing terms because it it does lead us to salvation, which we're going to talk about soon. But realize that when Christ decided to come, it wasn't because he said, these are good people I can't wait to spend time with because I'm going to be so happy from their love for me, so full from how they serve me. He came knowing that we are hateful people and that when we're confronted by his pureness, his reality that we would despise him. When the mask that we cover our impurity is ripped away by his goodness and his selflessness, we're going to hate him. Again, David's prayer, more in, the num- more in numbers than the hairs on my head are those who hate me without cause. And John 525, but the word that is written in the law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. Um, one of the early reformers in the Catholic Church, a, a guy named St. Bernard, wrote this in a uh, classic uh, piece of writing called On Loving God. He said, Creation was not so vast a work as redemption, for it is written of man. And of all things that were made, he spake the word, and they were made. But a redemption, that creation which sprang into being at his word, how much he spake, what wonders he wrought, what hardships he endured, what shames he suffered. Therefore, what reward shall I give unto the Lord all the benefits which he hath done for me? In the first creation he gave me myself, but in his new creation he gave me himself. And by that gift, restored me to the self that I had lost. Created first and then restored, I owe him myself twice 
over in return for myself. But what have I to offer him for the gift of himself? Could I multiply myself a thousandfold and then give him all? What would that be in comparison with God? How does he give himself to us? How could we ever deserve this? Through the cross, through what we call substitution. Read with me again Psalm 69. 19 through 21. You know my reproach and my shame and my dishonor, for my foes are all known to you. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none, and for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food, and for my thirst, they gave me sour wine to drink. David Kidner, in his commentary, on these verses, especially the last 21, says, what David offered in a metaphor, Jesus offered in fact. According to Matthew 27, 33, or Matthew 27, 34, and 48, when on the cross, he was offered gall and vinegar. And David is speaking of a, a poisoned food and a thirst, and they gave me sour wine to only increase my thirst. The reality is, all of sin is sour wine that only increases your thirst. It only real, makes you realize how desperate you are, how empty those things are to you as far as a place of hope. That is what Christ ate and drank on the cross. O oh God, you know my folly. The wrongs I have done are not hidden from you, David said in verse 5 and in 19. You know my reproach, my shame, my dishonor. But we have a holy one. We have a gospel. We are broken, no matter how much we refuse to realize it. We are sinners. But Hebrews 4, 15 tells us, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. He submitted himself and substituted himself into his creation in our place, sympathizing totally with our temptation, but yet lived without sin. 1 Peter 3.18 tells us, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive. He substituted himself into our suffering. The just for the unjust. Why? So that he can substitute us into his place. That he might bring us to God. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. We're told in Romans. Why? That we might become the righteousness of God in him. The just for the unjust. Substituted himself in our place so that he can bring us into his righteousness. Into his standing with the Father and the Spirit. Into a complete unity with God. 
We came and lived a life we should have lived, completely other-oriented, completely holy, never mistreated or abused, never missed any opportunity to correct, never missed an opportunity to serve someone he was supposed to. He did not do so to hold it over our heads, forever leaving us in regret. He did not do it to forever leave us to wallow in our shame and guilt. He died so that he can bring us out of those things, bring us into his joy. He suffered the wrath so that we don't have to. Why? How does that solve our problem? It's good news. It doesn't seem like it's good news, but it is. Here's what it means. It means when we seriously judge our hearts, when we, we will find ourselves lacking, completely self-centered instead of other-oriented. We will see the hatred, the complete disregard we have for people. We'll see the trails of bodies we've left in our wake, knowing that we deserve to die, and that we deserve to be mocked and beaten and spat upon. But when we see the truth of the gospel, when we see how much we need to die because of our sins, we also see that that death has been rendered. When we see how much we deserve to be beaten, we see that those beatings have been rendered. When we see how much we deserve to be mocked, we see that those mockings were rendered. How much we deserve to be spat upon, we see that that spitting has been rendered on Christ, in our substituted, saving work for us. The, substitute, the separation we deserve was rendered to Christ on the cross and in the death for three days. We deserve, because of our unholiness and our lack of love for God, our demand from, for God for something other than Him constantly, to be separated from Him. And in the cross, that separation was rendered. And in the grave, that separation was rendered. Our salvation, therefore, comes through faith in Christ alone. It's finished. There's nothing you need to do. It's complete. Everything was done for you. And it's based upon him. Uh, Going through a book with the... Chris and a couple other guys from uh, this group, and from that book I shared uh, a part of it with uh, some of my friends that I'm studying Job with here at the church, and in it, uh, Keller uses the analogy of an airplane to talk about faith. He says, imagine there's two people who are about to get on an airplane to travel somewhere. One is totally afraid that this plane is going to crash, and they will, he will not make it. The other is completely satisfied in the structure of the plane, the engineering of the plane, and the fact that he will land safely. They both get on the plane, one with little faith, one with great faith. The reality is, it doesn't matter how much faith one has, the plane is going to get there, or it's not. In this case, it lands. Didn't land because of the faith of one uh, was lacking, or the faith of one was great. It landed because that's what it was engineered to do, and that's what it did. 
for us, our faith is not dependent upon our faith, or our salvation is not dependent upon our faith, just as the success of that flight was not dependent upon one's faith. It's dependent upon Christ. And so that's why we have that parable in the body or in the Bible of uh, the owner of the field who sends out a servant to gather some servants to work the field, and throughout the day he brings more and more in. And at the end of the day, he pays all of his servants, and they all get paid the same, no matter how much they spent time working in the field, no matter how well their work or how efficient their work was in the field. They got paid the same because. Our salvation is not about our faith. Or our salvation is not about how great our faith is or how great of works are born out of our faith. It's about Christ. No matter where you're at with your faith, no matter when it started, no matter when it began, no matter how it started or how it began, no matter what your life was like before, it is in Christ that your salvation is found. It's done. It's finished. It's complete. In Christ and Christ alone. But again, this is offered to us with full knowledge of who we are. Keller says this, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It, gets a, it gives us information but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling and rest in God's mercy and grace. All the things that you deserve to be mocked about, you deserve to be spit upon, be beaten for, to die for, Christ knows. There's nothing hidden from him. You are hiding no guilt, no shame, no sin from God. He knew it all, and he went to the cross for it all. You don't need to hide anything from him. You don't need to correct anything before coming to him. You can't. Because he has this complete gospel to restore you. But we're not done yet. Then Christ rises. The sinking is over and the rising begins. But again, it's not just for himself. Luke 12, 37 says, Blessed are those servants whose master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. Blessed are those whose master finds them in faith. He will come and serve you. Christ rises to his place of power, omnipotence, sovereignty. And he does so because he's going to come and serve you in his power, in his omnipotence, his glory, his greatness. All your brokenness will be corrected. All your shame and guilt will be cast away. All the evilness in your heart will be removed. Completely restored by his power. 
displayed in the resurrection. His ability to give life to the dead. All the power that he has will restore the brokenness of our relationships, our communities, our world. Justice will reign. Those who refuse it will be condemned and separated. How does this change our world? In many ways. It changes how we respond to people's sin. In light of our sins being forgiven through the glory of the gospel, it changes our hearts through other people's sin. Recognize your brokenness and you'll see the brokenness of others. Live in your self-righteousness and you will always see people you think should behave differently than what they can do. Because people are broken. What we tend to think of sinners is they're fine people. They have everything in them to do better than what, they can, what they're currently doing. The gospel is, nope, and neither could you. But you were saved out of that. Sinners are broken, desperate people whose only hope are the things of this world unless they realize the full hope of something outside of this world, Christ and the gospel. Know your brokenness, and you will see in the sinners of others their brokenness, their emptiness, the desolation that is their heart and their life. Know what you're saved into, that servant who's going to redeem you. Instead of praying that you'll be saved from the high water, from the mire, from being swept this way and that way by the brokenness of our world, your heart will change. And you'll say to God, lead me to the places of high water, to the deep mire, to where the people are broken and need you. Instead of praying for their destruction, you'll say to God, my life is yours to hurt and to destroy so that they can be redeemed. It changes completely how we view people, how we understand sin and the brokenness of this world. It makes us real servants. And let me read Philippians 2, 2 through 11. So there is, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. 
have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Jesus Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by the taking of the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. For many of you, you say, look, care about people. I serve people. I don't doubt you do. I doubt the motives to which you serve. And here's how I want you to check yourself. The people you care deeply about that you try to serve the most, who are the people that hurt him? What is your fondness for those people? How much do you empathize with their brokenness? How much do you feel pain as a result of their sin that is destroying them? Do you mourn for them or do you hate them like Jonah and David? Do you long for their destruction or are you willing to suffer so that they might not continue in their suffering? And you're a servant. It doesn't just mean you have a fondness and a desire to help people means you have a fondness and desire to help everyone. And when you struggle with the idea of helping someone, it's because you struggle with the fullness of the gospel, the fullness of your sin, the fullness of which you can be restored, and the fullness of which Christ finished that restoration and makes it available to you through faith. doesn't mean we might not ever be called to do something to stop someone who's abusing or oppressing somebody else. But it means when we do so, we don't do it out of a hatred. We don't do it out of a longing for that person's destruction. We do it even to the point of the action with a hope of restoration, with a knowledge of their brokenness that has led them to sin in this way, their desperation. That's going to flip on end how we live in this world. How we love sinners. How we love people different than us. We're going to be hated because we're going to come with truth. We're going to live in holiness. and People are going to despise us. Do you celebrate that? People are never going to know the greatness and the glory of the gospel until they see it. If someone is indifferent to the gospel, it's because they don't know it. If someone you care about is indifferent to the gospel, it's because you have been giving a false representation of it. And until you give a real one, they're not going to know their brokenness. And they're not going to be able to know Christ as their Savior. Keller said, Christ stands alone against 
all that this world says, you find your life in him. And he did so to serve us because he knew the folly of that search for life. Because he knows the destruction it wrought. He designed us to live differently. And he wants us to have that life. And so he came in our place. He's going to restore us completely someday, as we know from him saying that he's going to serve us at the table. He's going to bring us with his full omnipotence, his full power, his full strength into exactly the type of creation we were intended to be. And he will separate those of us who refuse that choice. That same strength will be used to separate you from that joy and that life. The wrath of God, if you don't accept Christ's substitution for it, will hit you squarely. But that's not what he wants. He wants us to live a much different life than we do. Christ came to crown justice with atonement. His zeal for this, now that it's accomplished, will stir us differently. Cooling anger instead of kindling it. Fostering rather than stifling compassion. It's going to change us from being self-oriented to other-oriented. And if any place in this world that should be seen, it should be in his church. We as a church need to look very carefully at ourselves and say, are there people out there in this world who hate us? And are there people out there who are comforted in finding us as servants of the great Savior? In finding that servant in Christ and finding salvation. If they're not, we need to take a hard look at ourselves and say, what's wrong with us? What are we not understanding about sin? What are we not understanding about the gospel? What are we not understanding about servanthood in Christ? Let's pray together. Oh Christ, great servant. Servant in your nature. From beginning till now for eternity, a servant. The joy life-giving that comes from that. It's difficult for us to grasp. It's difficult for us to understand. It's difficult for us to trust at times. And that let us sin. But it is true. Spirit, help us to know your truth. Whatever was said today that was true and and in tune with your word, magnify it in our hearts. Anywhere I stepped out of you, correct in their hearts and minds. In mine, let's help us to know you as a servant, Christ. Spirit, come and do as you were told we were going to, uh, to at least we were told you would do. Remind us of the servant Christ, of his work, of his teaching. Help us to know that promise 
Help us to know the fullness of our sin in our nature apart from you. Help us to know the destruction it wrought and continues to wrought to bring in this world. And help us to know the glory of the gospel, the fullness of it, the completeness of it, what the restoration looks like. May we find our joy in your restoration. Free us to therefore become servants. Seeing not expectations and desires and needs in other people, but seeing the brokenness. And following with compassion and desire to serve them in their brokenness. Spirit, make us your compassionate army for justice. Because we're free in you, because of your death. Make us people who love each other in such a way that it's so different from the world, not self-oriented, but other-oriented. Not asking what we can get, but asking how we can serve and give. Make us like you, and may our relationships within this church reflect that. May they convict people, challenge people, but lead them to restoration as they know the truth of your gospel. That one absolute truth that doesn't leave us needing to work, to strive for, to fight for in this world to bring peace and joy. Because it was finished. It was done on the cross. And through your resurrection and your continued work in our lives, we are by your spirit. So we can be people of grace and mercy and compassion. Help us to stand apart and be a servant.